Well, Peter, thank you very much for uh, being here tonight. It's, uh, as you've heard from Colin, uh, this really is the home of literary events in Australia. Uh, we have a, a bevy of them, uh, and we are all of us greatly indebted to Colin for the way in which he keeps the authors rolling through. Um, I love this book. You've got a, a real talent for finding an important issue, as you did with uh, your book on temporary migration, uh, and bringing together so many of the facts, the stories, uh, the arguments uh, in a way that, that makes your books a sort of one-stop shop for, uh, for, for hot-button issues in Australia. So really commend you on, uh, on an important and, uh, and timely book, uh, hot on the heels of, uh, of, your, of your last one. Thank you. Uh, and I want to start uh, with, I guess, the, uh, the, the big question that uh, one always wonders as, as an economist. I mean, there's, there's lots of things that people could buy. Why is housing different? Why, why, does, why does housing matter? So why is housing not like any other product right. that, or service that we purchase? Well, I guess I, I, it's interesting in discussions of, of the book that I've had in, in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, the point was made by a guy called Tony Keenan, who used to be the head of Launch Housing in Victoria, a big community housing provider and, and provider of homelessness services. And he pointed out, look, we, we provide universal education. It's accepted that that is a fundamental part of Australian society. We provide universal health care. We accept that that is a fundamental part of Australian society. What about housing? Housing is equally fundamental to well-being. So unless you have a house, unless you have a place to call home, unless you have somewhere that you can reliably go back to, that you know you won't be kicked out of because you can't afford it or because the tenant, the landlord doesn't like the look of you or whatever else it may be, you cannot build the foundations of a flourishing life. So housing is foundational. It's the, the, our home is the place where we go to recreate ourselves, if you like, you know, uh, after dealing with the world, after being out in the world working, we come back and we replenish ourselves and we do it with our loved ones, we care for our children in, in the home, we invite others into the home, it's the basis of our social network, our, our social kind of presence, so it enables us to project ourselves out in the world and you need that foundation to do it. If that foundation is crumbling underneath you because you can't afford it, because it's uh, not a safe and healthy place to live, then your whole life is poorly founded. So I think housing is, is fundamental and therefore not like any other, any other good. And you talk in the book about the extraordinary rise of home ownership in that post-war post period, going from a home ownership rate of just 53% in 1947 through to 71% in 1966. And one of the things I enjoyed is that you don't simply paint this as being uh, a Menzies story, but you talk about how uh, housing, improving access to housing uh, was something that both political parties in the post-war era were committed to. I think it's a really interesting story for lots of reasons. So we talk about the Great Australian Dream as if it's kind of embedded in our psyches since the First Fleet. But in fact, as you point out, up until World War II, we had only about 50% home ownership. It was high relative to other countries, but it wasn't at the levels it is now. And there was a, a, a series of policies in the post-war period that improved housing and not just home ownership. So 
improved housing in two ways. Firstly, the, the Labor government, the Chifley government in the post-war period, put a lot of money into public housing. And public housing then was not conceived of in the way it is now as welfare housing, that is housing of last resort for people who are the most needy. It was seen as public housing for people who will not be well catered for in the private market, people on low incomes, including low income workers. And it was supported by people like Premier Thomas Playford in South Australia, it's, uh, you know, uh, the cherry growing Liberal Premier of, of South Australia for however many decades it was. Um, and uh, it was a, you know, there was an idea that, that you needed to do two things. You needed to provide uh, affordable um, public housing for people on low incomes, and then you also encourage home ownership. So, of course, for Menzies, this was partly an ideological project. If you had, if you're a homeowner, you were less likely to be a communist or a socialist, or even probably a Labor Party voter. And so, you know, encouraging home ownership was part of an ideological project, part of the Cold War. But there's lots of other factors that go into it too. I mean, it, it, um, it was possible on an ordinary income to buy a house and pay off a mortgage. And another factor which arguably comes in here is that we had rent controls during the war. Rent controls meant that landlords didn't really want to maintain their housing or build or invest in new rental housing, so they sold it to their tenants. So that also boosted home ownership. So there's lots of factors that come in here, but a lot of it is, is public policy. Yes, there's that uh, old notion I guess Menzies tapped into that it's hard to build support for capitalism among people who don't have any capital. Uh, and But on the other hand, you talk about Chifley as being more even-handed, having that, that notion that we need, to, as a society, to also understand the value of renting. And, and you have that lovely story of, of Thomas Playford writing to Robert Menzies in 1955, uh, saying, essentially, don't forget about renters. Yeah, so, so in, in the, we, we've had a series of national housing agreements between the states and the Commonwealth, the federal government and the state governments, state and territory governments, that began in 1945 with Chifley. And it began with um, the Commonwealth providing a lot of funds for the states to build affordable rental housing, what we now know as public housing. Menzies didn't like this so much, and so, but he was tied to it after he came into office because it was a 10-year agreement. Once he was able to amend it in 1955, he shifted the funds towards uh, mortgage, uh, concessional mortgage, mortgages and also to enabling public housing tenants to buy their own homes. So he, you know, he, his predisposition was to home ownership. But I, I think that that post-war period is a period we should look to of even-handed um, uh, um, approach to housing. It doesn't privilege home ownership over, over renting. There are lots of benefits of home ownership. Anyone who owns a home will, will know the benefits. No one, no one can tell you you can't drill a hole in the wall to hang up a picture. You can decide whether or not you have a pet. You don't have to ask someone else. Uh, you, you can decide what to plant in the garden. So home ownership has its own benefits. We don't need to subsidise it on the whole. People will pay for it anyway. But the way we treat housing is we, we subsidise home ownership. And essentially, uh, I mean, the, the, the you're an economist, so you'll be able to explain this, uh, the notion of imputed rents. So a homeowner has an imputed rent, that is the rent they would otherwise be paying if they had to rent in the private market. So they're getting an income from their home that in, in fact previously in Australia was taxed, long ago, I think in pre-1930 or something. 
but we don't tax we don't tax um, your primary housing in any way. And so the sensible thing for a rational economic actor to do is to invest heavily in housing because it won't be taxed when you pass it on to your kids. It won't be taxed when it rises in value. And so in Australia we overinvest in housing. We have bigger houses than we need. We, we, we borrow more than we should to invest in housing. It's not actually a very efficient way to do things. And this, uh, this over-investment in housing has, over recent years, led to a decline in the home ownership rate, uh, down now to 65%, uh, the lowest it's been in, in six decades. Um, you point out in particular that the drop has been significant for 25 to 34-year-olds, uh, where the home ownership rate is, is down by about 11 percentage points since the, since the 1980s. Um, What's caused this, this drop in home ownership, almost the undoing of, of some of, uh, of, of what was achieved in those post-war decades? So a, a lot of stuff has come together and, and the, the decline in home ownership is most um, consistent since the mid-1990s. Um, it kind of wavered a bit before that but it's been going down steadily amongst younger age groups since the mid-1990s. So not just the 25 to 34 year olds but also the 35 to 44 uh, so the declines are starkest, strongest, most noticeable in younger age groups and they're most noticeable in the cities with the highest house prices, Sydney and Melbourne. They're most noticeable in, uh, amongst low income earners. So if you disaggregate the data you'll see it's not just a generational thing, it's also a class thing. Mm. Um, and the overall rate, the 65% rate, still is pretty high, but that's partly because we're an ageing society and most older Australians own their own homes, so that's holding up the level. But as the generational tide moves through, unless something changes, home ownership rates are going to fall sharp, more sharply. So what's, been, what's, what's caused that? Well, um, <laughs> lots of factors come to bear. One is that uh, particularly recently, interest rates are very low and therefore people are borrowing a lot more and that's pushing up prices and that's making housing less affordable. It's, it's more affordable to service a mortgage now than it used to be because you're paying low interest rates, but it's harder to get that deposit that you need because the prices are high to get that initial deposit. So that's, that's, uh, that's one thing that's reducing affordability. Um, People, young people these days have hex debts to service. So, uh, you know, whereas they, I didn't have that, I got free education. Um, so, you know, that's a bit less money. People are studying longer, starting their earning later in life, forming um, families later in life. These factors all, um, all feed into it. Um, and then in the most recent period since the introduction of a 50% capital gains tax discount and negative gearing, we've supercharged um, the ability of people who already have housing wealth to borrow against it and buy more housing so that uh, investors are outbidding first home buyers in the market and pushing up um, the price of housing overall. Then depending who you believe, um, we're also, we also haven't been building enough housing. We've had high rates of immigration, which of course increases demand for housing. And the Grattan Institute will argue that we haven't built enough, 
then Phillips here at the ANU says, actually, we've built, uh, we have built enough, or he will say more accurately, you have to disaggregate the different markets. You can't just look at the overall figure. You have to look at specific cities and specific segments of cities. And so in Melbourne, we've built a lot of apartments in the inner city, but that's not necessarily where the housing is needed, or that's an investment product rather than a, a you know, housing product. So it's a complicated story, and people, I've been doing talk back, and people say, oh, we should ban foreign investors from buying Australian housing. And I say, well, actually, foreign investors can only buy new properties. So every time a foreign investor buys a house, there's a new house built, they're not changing the demand. We should, we should cut immigration. Well, yes, we could cut an immigration, and that would reduce demand, but be careful what you wish for. You know, what are you going to stop? You're going to limit the number of students who come and study at the ANU. How are you going to fund the education system? Uh, we, we've, we've got a terrible problem of finding people to work in aged care. Uh, who's going to do those? You know, there's all sorts of, it's not a, it's, it's easy to say, hard to do. Um, so we look for simple solutions, but in fact, we need to address a whole lot of areas, I think, of policy. It's complex picture. There's no silver bullet. Um, there's no simple answer, but there are a range of practical things mm. I think that we could do. And last time I checked, uh, migrants were also overrepresented in the housing construction sector. So many migrants come here, indeed, to get a job building a home. Yeah. Uh, but you talk about the, uh, the, the run-up in house prices. I guess it's, uh, it's worth just commenting on how massive that's, that's been. Um, I remember getting kicked out of a share house in Paddington in Sydney in 1996 because the owners had managed to sell this uh, four-bedroom terrace house. And the, the four of us just scratching our heads at who on earth would pay $450,000 for a house in Paddington. Um, and now that place is presumably worth four or five million dollars. Uh, it, it's... Well, well let, me, let me tell you my own housing story, because I think it's important that those of us who've benefited from the property market talk about it. My wife and I bought our first house in Northcote, and anyone who knows Melbourne knows that Northcote is about six kilometres from the CBD. We called it in those days far northern Fitzroy because it was a little bit too suburban for our <laughs> tastes, uh, any city types that we were, but we bought this house in Northcote for $137,500, a four-bedroom weatherboard, double-fronted, on a reason, you know, standard size sort of suburban block, garden, front and back, driveway, off-street parking, all the rest of it, $137,500. 15.5% interest uh, rates at the time. We had to borrow $80,000, seemed like a huge amount, but actually it was probably twice my annual salary. Um, and uh, that house, when you look at it, we don't own it anymore, but if you look it up on a real estate website, it's worth between $1.7 and $2.1 million. Now, that, we did some really good renovations, right? We worked hard, we, we painted and patched, and you know, that's not why it's worth $2 million. It's worth $2 million because the price of land that it sits on has gone up. Now, if we still own that house, and in fact we've traded up, so we've probably done even better, I would say, my wife and I, if we still own that house and we sold it, there would be at least, take out uh, inflation, take out whatever we spent on renovating it, at least a million dollars profit. For nothing. That's, that's not work, that's, that's sitting around watching your assets rise in value. Now, why do I deserve that? Because I was so clever in 1990 to buy a house? No, because I'm generationally lucky. And that, that luck, this is the primary argument of the book, that luck needs to be shared.
So the house price to income uh, ratio, uh, according to the Reserve Bank, has gone from two to one in the 1980s yep. to about five to one now, even after some of the recent moderation. Eight or nine to one in Sydney and, and seven to one in Melbourne, and only actually two and a half to one in Canberra from recent figures I saw, because of course Canberra has a high median income as well, which means it's particularly hard for low income earners in Canberra, but another story. So on average in Australia, are uh, houses too expensive? Yes. That, uh, and, and that then means that we are also overly indebted. So household debt, which is primarily composed of housing loans, either primary residence or investment loans, household debt has gone from roughly $50,000 per household in 2008, pre-GFC, to roughly $100,000 per household today. Ten years, household debt has doubled. Um, you can look at it in other ways, you can um, look, uh, but it, it's, it's a, if interest rates go up, that's serious. If interest rates even go back to pre-GFC levels of only 5%, you know, as, as the base rate, there's going to be a lot of people who, who've borrowed a lot of money, either to buy investment properties or to buy their own homes, who are then going to find themselves in mortgage stress, at the very least. Uh, and nine-tenths of that is, uh, is mortgage debt, I think you, you're saying, exactly. saying, the, yeah. saying the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if, uh, if ha cars had gone up in, uh, in price tenfold over, uh, over this period, we would be outraged. Why are Australians not troubled by this well, because, increase in housing? Because most, of us, most people like, are like me. As John Howard famously said, no, no one ever complained to me about the value of their home going up. So most of us are winners, right? Or a large, so people worry about their kids. They say, will my kids ever be able to afford to buy a home? Well, that's a concern. Um, but most people who bought five or more years ago in most markets will be better off. I mean, not in every market. Perth's gone down several years in a row now, but you know, even there, it's not gone down as much as it went up in the boom during the mining boom. So overall, 65% uh, of, of people are homeowners, so most of them have benefited. So they're not. So we talk about a housing crisis, but the, housing, the flip side of the housing crisis is a housing bonanza um, for people like me. Um, so that the crisis, the real crisis, is in um, 116,000 people homeless at the last census, up from 102,000 at the previous census. I'm sure it's higher again today. Um, that's obviously the, the sharpest end of the crisis. And then the, there is the 50% of low-income households in the private rental market who are in housing stress. So housing stress means spending more than 30% of your disposable income on housing. If, you, if, if you're more than 30% of your income is going on rent, then you are likely to be scrimping on turning the heater on or sending your kids on the school excursion or going to the dentist. Um, so, you know, that's for me that that's the crisis. That's the thing we need to fix um, most urgently. Is it also that the 35% are more politically disorganised than the 65%? That they tend to be younger, tend to be, tend to be more peripatetic, uh, less likely to bail up John Howard in the street, perhaps? Uh, probably, but I also think that the two major political parties know that 65% is a majority and appeal to that group, because that's going to win them elections more than 
uh, going to it with a policy of let's change the way we tax housing <laughs> so that some of you people who've made windfall gains share some of it. That's not really, a, as a politician I imagine, Andrew, that's not really a very attractive proposition, right, to go and say let's change the way we tax uh, housing uh, so that you rich, you, those of you sitting on wealthy houses can give, some up, give up some of your wealth. We'll, we'll come later in the conversation to... <laughs> Labor's policies for changing ta housing taxation so that we improve home ownership. But I, I did want to um, move... But, so, to so, but let me just go back to the 35%. So in that 35%, there's about 5% and more here in Canberra who are in public housing, and they're okay because their rents are fixed at 25% of their income. So, and we used to have 7% public housing in Australia just about two decades ago, and now we've got 4% because we don't build it anymore. Uh, we are building, a, we're supporting a little bit of community housing, which I, you know, think is, is very good. So that's, instead of a state housing authority, it's a not-for-profit organisation that provides um, community housing. But we're simply not doing what we did in that post-war period. Um, so the, 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 those people are okay. The ones who are in trouble are the ones in the private rental market in the bottom two-fifths of, of income. Yeah, so let's talk about renters. I mean, one of the things I really liked about your book is it's, it's not going out there saying everyone should own their own home. Uh, indeed, there's a strand of economic research which says that uh, home ownership may be problematic in a fast-changing labour market because it means that people are less likely to be able to move to take a good job. Um, and you, you talk about your friend Carolyn uh, and about the, uh, who's, who's in the period when you bought a home, uh, remained a, a renter and, uh, and some of the challenges she's faced. Uh, and you also talk about Australia's laws relating to, to renters. There's this, it prompted me to go back to one of these lovely Grattan reports about uh, rights of renters in various countries, um, particularly the contrast between Germany and, uh, and Australia. Uh, Germany, the typical lease term is indefinite. Australia, it's six to 12 months. Uh, Germany, the typical notice, uh, the, the reasons the lease can be terminated are only for non-payment. Uh, in, in Australia, it's basically any reason. Germany, you're entitled to have a pet. Australia, you've got to get the landlord's consent. Uh, Germany, you're allowed to put up a picture or lay carpet or paint the place. Australia, you've got to get the landlord, landlord's consent. Why is it we've ended up with these sorts of uh, landlord-friendly rules around uh, that, that govern the rental relationship? Well, partly it's because we've privileged home ownership ideologically as, as a better uh, thing. So, so renting has been allowed to be a sort of second choice or, 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 or um, last resort option. Um, and partly because a majority of people have become homeowners, so they're not so concerned about renters. Um, but partly I think it's about the, the way in which, again, it comes back to tax. So interestingly, Germany has um, a, 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 a negative gearing and a capital gains tax discount, same as Australia, except that to get the capital gains tax discount in Germany, you have to hold on to the property for 10 years. And only then do you qualify for the discount on the capital gain. And so you have an incentive to provide long-term housing to someone. Um, whereas here, you can get the capital gain after 12 months, the capital gains tax discount after 12 months. So here, we want to keep the tenant on their toes. We want to be able to kick them out any time because you know, any day we might want to realise that capital gain before the market turns or, or, or whatever it is. And, and there's a kind of... We talk a lot in Australia about mum and dad investors or mum and dad landlords as if it's a kind of hobby. 
as if it's a you know the, the the landlord is doing the tenant a favour by letting them stay in their in their house, whereas in fact it's it's a business arrangement and it should be subject to the same sorts of minimum standards as other business arrangements. So landlords should be expected to provide a house that is secure, to do repairs when they're needed, a house that can be reasonably heated and cooled, and things like that, um, and. Uh, you know, to not be able to simply end a tenancy because they feel like it. So interestingly, um, debates going on in the New South Wales Parliament right at the moment about new rental laws uh, and reforms to tenants' rights, and there's some improvements, but the one thing they won't do is get rid of what's called uh, um, no grounds ending of leases. So at the moment, you can simply say, I'm going to end the lease because I want to, because it's my property, you don't have to give any reason. It's not because you're selling the property. It's not because you want to move into, into it yourself. Uh, in Victoria, they've moved a bit further. New tenancy laws there do give a bit more. Uh, you, can't, you can give a no grounds and end a lease on no grounds, but only after the first 12 months. After that, after, after it becomes ongoing, you can't. So Victoria's moved a bit further, but yeah, I, think, I think that there is a need for much uh, improved tenants' rights. And Germany's really interesting, because I lived in Germany as a student. So in Germany, when you move into an apartment, you renovate it. You're ex you, do, you, lay the, you put the wallpaper on and paint it. and uh, So it's the complete opposite of here. And when a new tenant moves in, they renovate it. So there is an expectation that you're going to make it how you want it, and you're going to stay there a long time. It's not, it's not the very kind of short-term arrangements we have here. Yes, my favourite anecdote in Germany was uh, friends who have a, an investment property there and the tenants came to them uh, and were quite aggrieved uh, that my friends wouldn't allow them to knock down one of the walls in the rental property. And my friends had said, you know, in principle we didn't mind them knocking down a wall, but it is a structural wall. Uh, we had some, had some concerns about it. Uh, you also talked too about the, uh, uh, and this is coming back to that gap, uh, about the significant gap between the value of public housing and the value of rent assistance. I think you say that rent assistance is now worth only about a third of the value of, pu of public housing. Is, is that a problem for us as a nation? So, so I think we need to talk about these two things. So public housing is housing that the state builds or provides and people pay a fixed or their rent is pegged to their income. So a lot of the residents of public housing are pensioners, for example. They might be people on disability support pensions and so on. Rent assistance is a Commonwealth program whereby the government gives you, if you're on a Centrelink payment like disability support or the pension, they give you some money to help you pay the rent. And there's, a, there's an argument as to which is the better way to go. Is it better for governments to build housing and provide uh, that housing at a fixed rental? Or is it better for governments to put money in the pockets of renters and let them choose the housing they want? So the Productivity Commission goes to the latter view. They say, you know, increase rent assistance, let the private market provide the housing and let people use that, that rent assistance to choose the housing they want. My concern with rent assistance is that it doesn't actually do anything to increase the housing supply. So it does, it does enable people to have more choice in their housing. It does, I mean, the, the way it's structured at the moment, it's capped, so the amount you get is very small. And if you're paying a rent in Bathurst, you, get, you can get the same level of rent assistance as if you're paying a rent in Paddington, 
which is kind of ridiculous. So um, it, it's not, it's a, it's a bit clumsy, um, but uh, it, my main concern is that it doesn't actually do anything to create a bigger stock of affordable rental housing. And the private market, I'm, I'm yet to see a private market that provides for people at the bottom of the housing market, that provides adequately for them. They might get them slums, they might get them, you know, overcrowded, unsanitary, unsanitary housing, but a private market that actually provides decent, affordable, decent housing for those people at the lowest levels of the income ladder, I'm yet to see a market that does that without some kind of government program. Now, you talk about the impact of this huge run-up in house prices on inequality, and you note that uh, uh, only a small fraction of the poorest fifth of Australians own their home, 99% yeah. of uh, the richest fifth have uh, some form of property. Oh more interesting to, to me was your comment about how social stratification has changed. Uh, this notion of uh, mixed income suburbs where you say in Melbourne in the 1970s about a sixth of suburbs were, were a mix of different, different house prices. Now it's only about one in 50 suburbs are a mix of different house prices. And you have this lovely quote from Michael Sandel about how that, uh, that undermines democracy. What does it mean to a kind of egalitarian democracy to, to when suburbs stratify by, uh, by, by price? So Sandel, as people will know, um, you know, the American philosopher whose lectures are a YouTube sensation, he was on Q&A a while ago, he has this, he says, in a democracy it's not important, it doesn't, it's not that everyone should have an equal share, but that people should rub up against each other. They should, they should meet each other. So he's, he writes about the skyboxification of sport. And he says, you know, when I was a kid and I went to the baseball, I sat on the bleachers and everyone sat on the bleachers and we all ate hot dogs and it was a kind of shared communal experience. Now there are the people in the skyboxes and then there are the cheap seats. And so his point is it's good for people to rub up against one another from different backgrounds. This is, this is healthy for a democracy. And so I am concerned that our cities are becoming increasingly polarised spatially so that we, you know, you know it, we used to build social housing, public housing, in uh, close to the city, but now, the, you know, now there's a tendency to say, oh, well, that's very valuable land, so we could sell that land to private developers and use the money to build more social housing somewhere else, further out. So, in effect, then, you're, again, you're polarising the city. You're moving the poor people further out. And, 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 and we're seeing, you know, that, that there's a relationship between proximity to the city centre and prices, so, therefore, we are creating a kind of social segregation, polarisation. I think that's a matter of concern for, for a country that, you know, I think has an egalitarian ethos that, that we, uh, we want to maintain. Yeah, one of the things that always struck me living in the States for four years was that in Australia, the poorest Australians are on the outskirts of the cities, and uh, in the US, the poorest Americans are often in the centre of the cities. So in America, you're much more likely to, uh, to, to, to be exposed to hardcore poverty in your daily life than you are in Australia. Uh, you talked too about um, homelessness, and, and I think it's interesting the way you approach homelessness because... Uh, I couldn't quite tell whether you regard homelessness chiefly as a function of uh, access to housing and being driven by high house prices, or whether it's really a manifestation of other 
social challenges, uh, deep, depri deep deprivation in, in society. Yeah. How, how do you see extreme homelessness? So I, I think that homelessness is sparked by all sorts of crises in individual lives. So often domestic violence is a big cause or family violence is a big cause of homelessness. It is compounded or often compounded by things like mental illness, uh, addiction, poverty. All these things can lead people to becoming homeless. But resolving homelessness does also require us to create a supply of affordable housing. So I'm a big fan of what's called housing first as a philosophy. So the idea of housing, the traditional approach to homelessness is a stairway model, staircase model. So okay, we, you've got a mental health problem, let's deal with your mental health problem, because obviously, as long as you've got your mental health problem, you're not going to hold down a tenancy. You know, you're going to do something that will mean the landlord kicks you out, or, or if you've got an addiction problem, or whatever. So let's get your mental health sorted, and then you know, we'll train you up and give you some financial literacy, and when you're ready, you'll get a tenancy. But the problem is, as long as you're in insecure crisis accommodation or homeless, you don't, you're not going to deal with your problems, right? So the housing first model turns it on its head and says, let's get you into some secure housing and then we can provide the wraparound services that also uh, enable you to deal with whatever other issues are going on in your life, the trauma of you've experienced with family violence or whatever. Now, that only works if you've got a kind of comprehensive approach to housing that enables you to, to provide housing at every level. Um, so, um, uh, um, Finland, so, so, you know, we could see that the homeless will always be with us because people will always have mental health problems or, or drug problems or whatever, but that's not the case. Um, in Finland, they have, there are no people sleeping on the streets. What they did was they took all their crisis accommodation and they turned it into housing. They said, what's the point in putting someone in crisis accommodation that they stay in for months and years that's meant to be temporary? Let's put them in housing right from the start. Let's demolish this, build something new, put them in housing right from the start and support them. But then Finland also has 13% public housing, of all housing. They, the, they mandate 20% of new developments as affordable housing. So there's a whole, you know, if you just did the, uh, the housing first just for homeless people, well, you'd, it'd be in your interest to become homeless in order to get some good housing, right? That's kind of perverse. So you actually need to, it needs to be a whole integrated system. And there's many reasons for buying this book, but uh, chief among them is the fact that uh, all of your royalties go to Front Yard, a, a homelessness uh, uh, support, support service there, which I, I, I commend you yeah. for. Um, I mean, to wrap up, you've got a lot of uh, policy recommendations. You uh, commend uh, the reforms that the Bar government's put in place here in the ACT of moving from stamp duty to land tax. Um, you, uh, you praise the uh, uh, policy boldness we've taken as uh, federal labour in reforming negative gear in the capital gains tax discount. Um, you talk about the benefits of, of build to rent, uh, sort of Manhattan style, uh, style developments. But underlying a lot of it also seems to be this notion that we should simplify housing in some sense, make it less of a kind of fervid national conversation as we trade among one another these, these existing properties and simply go back to a, notion, to a notion in which 
where, in, in Chifley's words, more even-handed. Is, is that a reason, reasonable summary of, uh, I, I, uh, of your philosophy about housing? I, I think it is. I mean, there's a, there's a quote in the book. It's a very good book called, not that I want to plug someone else's book, but a very good book written about 20 years ago called Home Truths. And in that, uh, um, Andrew Beer and um, I can't remember the other author, but they... Blair Babcock. That, yeah, that's right, Blair Babcock. And they, and they have a line where they say, no, no nation ever got rich by buying and selling houses. Uh, and it's true, you know, and, and the governor of the Reserve Bank, when he was deputy governor, gave a speech in which he said, you know, the underlying increase in the value of land, by which he means rising real estate prices, may not be adding to our national wealth, it may just be redistributing that wealth. And, and this is what we have to realise, that, that, that this froth, this, um, uh, you know, of, of speculation and... Um, uh, escalating house prices is not actually producing anything. It's creating debt, it's creating wealth, but it's also part of this boom-bust cycle. And we actually, we'd be better off to smooth that out. So if we were building more public housing, if governments were building more public housing, that would be a way of smoothing the boom-bust cycle in the construction industry. So that, you know, when, because when, it's going to stop, right? We've, been, we've had this construction boom and now it's going to go stop. It builds up slowly, employment increases slowly. When it stops, lots of people lose their work, lose their jobs. It's happened in Perth. It's going to happen, I think, in Sydney and Melbourne because there's been enough apartments built now until the market absorbs them and probably not going to build so many more. So, but if we had a bunch of public community housing projects for people to be employed on, you could, you know, smooth those, those bumps. So, yes, I do think we, we should be less obsessed with housing and we need to see it as, as a, you know, not as an asset class but as a fundamental good that all human beings need. Peter, thank you very much for uh, uh, such articulate and thoughtful answers. Please join me in thanking Peter Mayers for a very stimulating conversation.